0: You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard.
1: Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Arc Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature-length film, The Alternate, is playing at the Phoenix Film Festival, the horror sci-fi side of it, on Friday the 8th and uh, Saturday the 9th for the closing weekend, which is very exciting. I will not be there. I will be there the week before, which is too late for you to know now because I'll already be back by the time you're hearing this, but it was fun. I'm sure.
0: I'm Liz Manichel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. Speed of Life is currently on Showtime until, and for just like two more months. I'm currently in development on about five more films. I'm a distribution consultant. He used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This week we welcome Caitlin Gold who is a producer, but she also works with the 51 Fund. And she talks on the show about how they pick films for the fund as well as how she picks films as a producer. After that we talk about, an Article from IndieWire about the crazy drama-filled Oscars, and we also read an iTunes review. But first, Alric, how you doing?
1: I think I'm recovering from the excitement and thrills from Sunday's Oscars. You know, I think on the show I talked about how much I didn't like the year before's Oscars, but this Oscars was returned to form in a way. You know, as far as like the glitz, the glam, the fun, the musical performances, and the awesome hosts and everything. Like I really appreciated having hosts again. I hosts. Hosts are fun. They did a great job. I was very excited. So, uh, but besides that, yeah, I feel like uh, this week is supposed to be a slow week for me at work. But I, I've, it's already Tuesday, and I feel like I'm busier than ever with work stuff and baby stuff and life stuff. And so, I really haven't done, done enough filmmaking stuff, which kind of sucks. And I'm really excited because I'm going to go to the Phoenix Film Festival in Arizona on Friday. So, like, that's coming up, which is going to be really fun. But I, I feel like my writing has taken a pause this last week since I talked to you guys, which sucks but and you had like I
0: 22 mean, pages last right you you were like yeah. almost nearing the end of the first act
1: yeah now I'm like I'm like 23 ish hey. yeah I mean I, I did some working out of some stuff and I, and I kind of got to a point where I was like I had written like like okay th- this character does this and I was like that's not enough for six pages of content like I have to decide like I have to create like characters for him to interact with I have to create like why this scene exists like what part of the like like, Like, what is this story? So it's like a whole thing. So I was like, over the weekend, I I took a bath and I just laid in my bathtub and I like sunk to the bottom and like just with my nose popping out of the water. And I just laid there for like, I don't know, 30 to 40 minutes just (gasps) listening to like the Phantom Thread soundtrack, which I love. And I was just thinking like, okay, what is this character's journey? What are we saying with this scene? Why does this scene exist? What is the purpose of the scene? What needs to happen more than this one thing? Like, what can we do here? I just sat forever just thinking about it. I think I unlocked some things in my brain, but it didn't make it to the page yet. So that was kind of a fun technique, you know, which I think I'll do more of. It was sort of like putting yourself in like a sensory deprivation tank yeah. of some kind. So I don't know. But I mean, things are good. I just, I, I really, I like especially watching the Oscars and like seeing all these amazing movies. And I mean, I, I watched all the Oscar movies, you know, I did not like the last one I watched, Licorice Pizza. I was very disappointed. With that movie. <laughs> oh my God. Anyways. But yeah, it was just, it's really been really inspiring. To be like, I need to get back into it. I need to make, start making my own movie, start creating my own story, crafting my own thing, getting to the next stage. You know, I'm like really excited to like turn the corner from like, you know, just worrying about the alternate to like, what is the next one going to be. So mm-hmm. it's been it's been an interesting time. But but how are you doing? What's going on with you?
0: You and I have very different tastes in film, but I won't get into it because it will just be this like. <laughs> I, think really an- I think it's because you're from
1: Los. I think it's because you're from Los Angeles. I think LA people like. I think there's some understanding or something. But but like to me I like nothing in that movie I could relate to at all I'm like no, I don't understand no. it's not an LA thing it's just
0: that it's I not. like I like a lot of movies where not a lot happens I think it's just a, a taste level in terms of plot I, I think you like plot I don't love plot I like I just, just
1: I just kind of I not get like like this character these characters like if I could like latch myself on to either of the characters if, if either of the characters made sense to me and I wanted to root for them I think that like maybe I'd be okay with it but I think both characters either couldn't understand or I couldn't root for. You know, it was either one of for, for the two leads and there was just so many shots of them running running for no reason. They're just running dolly shots. Like, it's like how many running dolly shots can we put in this movie that don't actually have much of a purpose or point to the story? It's like... <laughs> just running. Okay. That's cool. I, I, I like that. I don't know. Anyways, yeah, we definitely have different tastes. I, mean, I think we should do a whole episode about like your taste in movies and my taste yeah. in movies and like how they're both valid but different. I think that would oh, be fun.
0: Oh. And of course valid. I mean, I also love <laughs> driving my car. So I mean, and I remember when I'm, we I'm turning about the that.
1: I'm turning the corner. Are you? I so I, okay. I I'm like Wanda Sykes like with uh with uh, the power of the Dog bit. Like I'm, you know, I've watched it 3 times now and I'm halfway through <laughs> and I'm st- I'm starting to like it and starting to I'm, you know, it's maybe wonderful. 4 it's or 5 times <laughs> i'll be like okay i get it now
0: <laughs> well what am i up to so we did an episode a few weeks ago where i was like oh life is horrible compare and despair i haven't made it farther enough than you know far enough in my career that i i want to have vet by this point and, and my sister listened my sister is one of our three <sighs> listeners to this <laughs> podcast <laughs> and, she sent me. These. We have
1: way more than three. Okay, we, we actually at
2: least
0: a hundred. We, at least we track that we have at least six fifty, at least six fifty, yeah, but, but probably a few hundred to thousand more. But she's one of the hundred thousand more. Inter- interacts regularly with the podcast in a very generous, kind way, and she's sent me this uh podcast about. She sent me someone else's podcast about. What is it? Something about being in, like the benefits of being insignificant. That's not the title, but that's a paraphrase of it. And so I've been thinking a lot about insignificance, and it's. Actually actually been very helpful in that you know the slap the in, the infamous slap from last night is going to be insignificant in a thousand years just like my movies are going to be insignificant in a thousand years just like everyone's you know and it makes you feel a lot less stressed out about trying to make an impact with every single decision you make and a lot less pressure about making, creating some sort of legacy for yourself. So, that's been helping. Focusing on Insignificance has been helping. (laughs) And also, we are almost at the end of our treatment for our horror film, which means we're going to start writing pages. Which is like, I'm really excited about that because it is a very weird movie. It's like, it involves body swapping and witchcraft and... Interpretive dancing And like just weird stuff And I I really want to do something That's bizarre I really want to make a very bizarre film So that's what's going on right now for me
1: That's awesome Bizarre movies I want more of those
0: (laughs) That's right I mean, like, if we're going to control the financing, if we're going to control the distribution, if not, if I'm not indebted to anyone other than the audience and the community of people who know exactly what this is, I'm just excited to pick exactly who I want to be in the film and to pick the exact crew I want to make it with and not worry so much about optics and politics all the time. But enough about that. We also want to talk about Patreon and we want to thank the amazing Sarah Bimji. Sarah, it's been a while since you've had a Patreon supporter, so I'm going to give you a little context for this. We are wishing you a happy birthday and we wish anyone who gives us any sort of support on Patreon essentially birthday greeting. So thank you so much. Happy birthday to you for supporting the show. It's a huge deal and we are welcoming you into our, our little potent family here. If you want to be like Sarah, head on over to www.patreon.com slash mmihpodcast. Every single cent goes to making the show and as of right now, season six of the show, which features episode so it's with Amber Seely, Tara Lynn Shropshire, Joe Bob Briggs, and many more are behind the Patreon paywall. So if you want to hear those episodes, you need to join us. Join the Patreon family for $1.99 a month today. That's $1.99. We also want to shout out Jambox.io. They are a sponsor of ours. They are a royalty-free music and SFX company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues. We encourage you to use their promo code capital MMIH, when signing up to get a 20% discount on your subscription. And they offer customized plans to fit your needs. And they focus on working with composers on an exclusive basis. So check them out, jambox.io, promo code MMIH. But without any more delay, here's our chat with Caitlin Gold.
1: So Caitlin Gold, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Can you give us your quick one-minute bio?
2: One minute bio. Okay. Well, I'm a producer based in New York. I've been producing for the last decade, and I have a development and production company called Handbark Pictures. Most recently, we produced Catherine Eaton's debut feature, The Sounding, and Julia Kotz's debut feature and Doug and Kira, both of which we released earlier on in the pandemic and we have a development slate of about 5 or 6 other projects that we're working on. In addition to producing, I'm also one of the founders of the 51 Fund, which is an investment fund that I started with Naomi McDougal Jones, Lois Scott, Lindsay Lanzalada. and we are investing in narrative and documentary feature films written and directed by women and filmmakers who identify as female. That's my that's my spiel.
0: And I met you when you were working at Candy Factory. And can you talk a little bit about your background and distribution and and what led you to... I mean, I know life is not a straight line, but if we were to create a straight line from your work in distribution to development, producing, and now financing, it'd be great to hear that story.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So... As we all know, being an indie filmmaker in New York is not the most sustainable of careers. So I was really fortunate enough to land in an opportunity where I created a day job for myself working in distribution. A friend of mine at the time was launching a new distribution company. And as a producer, I was like, actually, I know very little about distribution. This was a decade ago. And I thought, you know, that'll be an invaluable learning experience. And so I joined him at that company. It was a company called Candy Factory Films. And I ended up working with him for God, probably two or three years before we actually sold that company's library to another company. But it was essentially my way to create Sustainability for myself. I needed to pay my rent, and I needed to, you know, support myself. And I, I wanted to try to find something within the industry where I could, you know, make money, pay pay bills, and still produce on the side. And and God bless Jason Ward, the founder of that company. He allowed me to still produce while I was working for him. And then working for him led to a brief stint at Lionsgate, working in distribution, and then. From Lionsgate, I went to Cedar Spark, but essentially I was working in distribution for, gosh, maybe seven or eight years while I was also, you know, being an independent filmmaker. And then eventually what happened was I had a child and I realized how precious time is. And I really was at a point in my life and my career personally and professionally where I felt like I want to go back to producing full-time. I want this to be my path forward. And I was in a privileged enough situation where I could do that at that point. And I made the leap and I I veered back into producing full-time and haven't, haven't really stopped since.
1: What were some of the things you learned in distribution that you were able to take into your indie filmmaking?
2: I learned how hard it is to make money on on our films, particularly, you know, this isn't news to anyone. It is hard to sell films that are, you know, straight dramas, which are the films that I was making, especially when you don't have names attached. You know, I'm sure you've had many, many people on your podcast who have probably said this, this is not probably new intel to your listeners, but it's really, really hard to get those films financed in the first place but then to to sell them in the market and you know even back then when there were a lot of smaller indie quote unquote indie distributors who were willing to take those risks on smaller films on lesser known films and filmmakers even then it was still really really hard and even if you did miraculously land a distribution deal and even a decent distribution deal it was still virtually impossible to make money for you as the filmmaker on that film. If you were super lucky, super, super lucky, you made your investors money. If you were like a lottery winner, you know, just one in a million, then you made money. You know what I you as the filmmaker made money. So it, it was just very eye-opening to see the numbers, to see how bleak it was for people who were making films like I was making. And yeah, it was a little bit depressing. I'm not going to lie, which is part of why, you know, I, I, I just wanted to get back to just making this stuff, just doing the work instead of Coming in at the tail end of a project and being a part of, you know, solely a film's release, I really wanted to be a part of those earlier conversations of, of developing projects and figuring out how to actually make this attractive on the end on the on the other end of this long road that we'll take. And so that was what really, you know, spawned my return to to producing.
0: I just think it's funny when I remember talking to you for the first time. I was in my boss's office, and it was a long time ago. And since then, I'm now working in distribution and sales. <laughs> particularly for the opposite reason that you left. I'm like, oh, I can build a freelance career with boundaries in independent distribution where I'm at. But I completely understand where you're coming from and why you wanted to depart. I just think it's funny. We kind of have this like switcheroo that happened. Considering all the data that you had access to and your love of dramas and your love of, you know, substantial storytelling. I'm just curious if, that impacts you when you take on a project? Do you see? I mean, I saw The Sounding, it's a wonderful movie. Catherine's a wonderful you. artist. Oh, you. you know, it is a straight drama, right? So I guess I'm curious if you decide to take on dramas in spite of the data that you faced and just work on other ways to increase the revenue streams,
2: or if you if you were deterred in some way in developing yeah. drama. There's a couple of things I want to say to that. One, so, even though the sounding yes straight drama i mean it also had other elements and i i would always advocate to producers who are making those straight dramas like what are those other elements so for the sounding for instance you know it had a romance element it had a mystery element so we would try to push those as hard as you can now ultimately a distributor might see that as strictly positioning or 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 producers trying to you know work a little pr angle but it, it did work. It does help. If you can find something slightly more attractive than just sort of positioning a film as a straight drama, I say, go for it. Now to answer the, the main part of your question, do I steer away from them now? Honestly, when I think about my slate and what we have that I'm producing, that I'm attached to, to produce, there are no dramas at the moment. Now, I love those films. I absolutely love those films. I'm trying to do things that are different. Me as a producer, I don't just want to be making the same type of movie over and over and over. If something, if I read something that spoke to me and moved me in a way that I, I couldn't say no to, absolutely, I would do it. Even if it was, a, you know, just a, again, I hate to just sort of break it down that way. Just like a, a drama. drama. Just a drama. It <laughs> sounds so silly, but like, no, it wouldn't... It. I'm not doing any at the moment, but I, I would never say a blanket. No, I will not touch that film. And then, in terms of what we're financing, I would say there's a number of dramas that we're looking at. You know, they have other elements to them. I think there's other sort of buckets or, or check marks that we look for to help elevate a project, especially when it's a straight drama. But definitely, there's there's a number that we're we're like strongly considering at the moment,
1: so this is kind of a two-part question. When you were in distribution, like what were some of the genres that you were seeing that were selling really well? Was it the standard like horror action, or was there other genres that were doing really well that people don't necessarily think of?
2: I mean, again, this is like me trying to think back to what feels like another life, because I'm, I'm so far <laughs> removed from working in distribution at this point. But no, we we looked at everything. We were totally genre agnostic. We looked at rom-coms. We, lo- we definitely looked at horror films, absolutely. And those uh, for, for the company that I was working at, at the time, Candy Factory, like, yeah, that was really appealing to to myself and to the owner of the company, you know, because they just they they have a built-in audience, they have their 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 low budget, like they they can sell for a reasonable amount. But yeah, we were really genre agnostic. I'm trying to think back, we were open to everything. It was more about like the elements of the project itself, you know, who who was the filmmaker behind the project? Is this a filmmaker we wanted to support and be a part of like, you know, if it was their first film, did we want to be a part of launching their career? That gives us way too much credit. But essentially, <laughs> yeah, like we wanted to build relationships with filmmakers. And even, uh, even now with the 51 Fund, we, we still approach filmmakers in that way. We're certainly judging a project in and of itself, but very much so it's who is the person behind the project? And, and is this a filmmaker who has something to say and and is the person to tell this story at this moment in time. So yeah, it's all of those things together.
1: So the second part of the question was like, you know, does that reflect what you're doing now in, in your slate? Like, is it the kind of the same sort of genres you're seeing, but you're saying you're seeing genres all over the place. All so, over
2: the place. Yeah. yeah. And, and on the 51 Fun side of things, we very much look at projects as part of a slate. So, you know, projects are submitted to us, whether it's from an agency or from the filmmaker or producer that we have a relationship with or whatever it is, we're considering the project in and of itself. But we're also looking at like, what else are we considering on our slate? And we want to make sure we don't have five dramas or five coming of age stories or five horror films. We want the, the slate to be varied and diverse. That's really, really important to us. It's one of the ways that we can help to you know, mitigate the risk for our investors the best that we can.
0: Can you explain what a film fund is?
2: Yeah. So <laughs> I can explain what we are. I can't speak to other funds or other financing companies. But essentially, we have raised money from private individuals and some institutional money. And they invest with us and they invest blindly. So they don't have any say in what we invest in. We keep them informed and we certainly are very, very transparent with them. And we will allow them to weigh in on projects, but they have no ultimate decision-making power in what we choose to put their money towards. And they invest with us knowing that. And so, yeah, and then we, we, we turn around and we put their money into a slate of films that we've myself and my colleague, Lindsay mostly have sourced, but we also work on a unanimous basis, meaning there's actually five of us at the fund. Now all five of us have to agree on a project to fund, which as you can imagine, we are five people with very different backgrounds. We are coming at this from different places, different experiences. And so to find a project that all five of us unanimously believe in is incredibly difficult. But it also means that when we do find something that all five of us are gung-ho for, it's usually because the project is magical and we can't say no.
0: Just a quick follow-up to that. That's lovely. Yeah. But a quick follow-up to that is, can you talk about the the structure of a film fund in, in terms of returns? Like, Is there a standard That if another company would call themselves a film fund, they would work in a similar way, or how do the investors get their money back?
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I, I I would imagine there's no standard. I don't, I don't know. There very well could be. Ours is uniquely structured. So there's a management fee that we take. It's a nominal management fee that we take off the top obviously our our invest- this is disclosed to our investors this is part of the deal and that it strictly allows us to be even remotely operational it's a very negligible amount but it does just allow us to you know pay our legal fees essentially for when we're putting our deals together and then i don't know if i'm allowed to say exactly like what our yeah you don't have to, have to give that, the terms but, but essentially <laughs> like we negotiate Terms directly with each film. And we have negotiating power on a film by film basis to do that. And that's pretty much, you know, we're typically negotiating the standard indie film term. So, you know, we get a return of 100% of our investment back and then anywhere from 10 to 20% on top of that and then we split 50-50 for the most part although although all deals are structured differently these days but for the most part 50-50 with the filmmakers and the with the you know the producer pool and the investor pool and then from what we get back frankly the 51 fund investors get the vast majority of that money back Hopefully that's somewhat clear. I can draw a diagram for you and your, <laughs> <laughs> your listeners if that's helpful. So you're also a
1: producer, but you're part of this fund. So does it mean that you can't like, would you, the fund ever produce one of your own movies that you're trying to get made? Or is that like not allowed? Yeah. Like, how does that it's work? A
2: great question. It has never happened. It hasn't come up. And to be totally frank, like what we are looking for on the 51 fund side is so specific in particular, that I know the projects that I'm producing aren't right for the 51 fund. And certainly, if there was ever a point where I felt like I had something that could be a fit, it would be vetted more harshly than any other project that comes our way from external sources. Because at the end of the day, first and foremost, we have you know a very strict fiduciary responsibility to our investors to take care of their money. And there can be no favoritism and and you know there's none of that we did not start this fund to finance our personal projects we've never financed our personal projects i think that it would be hard to see a situation i'm not saying it it wouldn't happen but it would be done in a very particular way and in a in a really transparent way with our investors too i like 30,000 questions just came to <laughs> my mind. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm me i'm going to i'm going to take one <laughs> <laughs>
0: Is there a world where you could demystify just the first steps of creating a film fund for our audience in the sense of like, I th- it feels very far removed for me in the sense of like that I would wake up one day and be like, I'm going to start a fund, let me find some people who have money. Like that seems very, that, that is a massive hill to climb already. And then you've created this like massive entity in the 51 fund and a very influential one. So I know that this is a hard question to ask, but what is the first step that you took when you decided to do this?
2: I love this question because what you don't see is you see Cusp, which was our first film and it went to Sundance and blah, blah, blah. And then I can talk about our next films that we're doing too. And they're great. What you don't see is like the four years we spent behind the scenes trying to get to Cusp or whatever our first film was going to be. And the reason that four years happened is because like you, Liz, I was, I'm was i a filmmaker and I wanted to do this. I believed in the mission we were, you know, trying to establish. We had no fucking clue what we were doing. We made a shit ton of mistakes along the way. And it was a total learning curve, like bigger learning curve than producing my first feature. Maybe maybe that's an exaggeration, but you know what I mean. <laughs> and I also want to say... I appreciate your kind words about the 51 fund. We are very still small potatoes. Like we are. I I know Naomi so well that I
0: hear about it all the time that I I have a vantage point that that I think shows its influence
2: a little closer range. I appreciate that. I'm going to be totally honest. Like we are we are small potatoes. I hope that we are not always small potatoes. Our goal is to be Financing bigger films at bigger budget levels and more and more filmmakers. Absolutely, we are not there. So, you know, I'm really, really proud of the first three, four films that we're doing, but it has taken us so, so long to get here. So, like, to even think back to what that first step was four, five, six years ago, no joke. Like, I was at Lionsgate when Naomi first came to me and was like, what if we did this? It was, it was. I wasn't even married yet. It was it was a long time. It was a very long time ago. I think the first thing and the thing that is was hard, really hard, and and even up until like a year ago, we were still tweaking this is like who is the team and why? I think now we have landed on our team, our beautiful, magical team, who really like we just work so well together. And nobody is duplicating each other. Like we all serve our different purposes. And that took us a really long time to get to. But if you can get there quicker than us, please do that. But you know, I guess before that, it's like, what is, what is your mission? Like, why are you doing this? Yeah. It, it's, it's gotta be, it's gotta be like, what is your. I'm going to butcher it, but like that fr- reason to exist, raison d'etre. <laughs> God, that is, my my French teacher mother would be mortified <laughs> if she heard me say that. But <laughs> but what is your reason to exist? Why Why are you doing this? So I think if you can nail that, that was the thing we were very clear on right from the beginning. Not only did we want to give women an equal voice in the entertainment industry by funding them, by giving them the money that they need we also had this innate mission to demonstrate that women are not charity cases. That investing in women, investing in women's stories isn't just good for humanity. It's actually just smart business. And so that was something that was really, really important to us to demonstrate from the start. So we are very numbers-driven and investment-driven and you know, we get asked a lot of the time, like, would you do a grant in my short film? Or would you do a grant for this and that? And we say, like, no, we are a for profit entity and women deserve investment dollars. So we deserve to be
0: commodities is what I always say. I'm like, commodify (laughs) me, please.
2: (laughs) And that was something that we, you know, we've really, really stuck to since the beginning. But yeah, it took us a really long time to get here. We have so far to go. But even to get to this point, it took us so long. Yeah. <laughs> so
1: you're also raising money for your own films, you know, that's separate from the 51 fund. So how does that work? Are you know, you go into completely different sets of investors to fill for the fund versus your own? And and how do you find these people? Like, how does this all work?
2: Yeah, no, it's a great question. So yes, for the most part, it's an entirely separate pool of people from my own projects. I, I'm really just mostly talking to financing companies, film financing companies. The 51 Fund. None of the investors in the fund are other other film financing entities. We have, you know, we didn't get an, any investments from any of the streamers or anything like that. So they're very separate entities, very separate pools of people and contacts. What I will say has been invaluable, and I know you, you know, a lot of your listeners are emerging filmmakers. The contacts that I've been able to make via the 51 Fund and the work that I've been doing on the 51 Fund side of things have been invaluable to me on the producing side of things. So, you know, making contacts with the different agencies and different financing companies, like a lot of those did come from the work that I've done with the 51 Fund. And I'm super grateful for that. But those people are not the same people that are investing in the 51 Fund slate. A lot of the times, they're partners. On films that we're working on. So, you know, we'll have other, you know, Mm. for Cusp, for instance, we had other executive producing partners on the film, other amazing film companies. And so, you know, we forge relationships with them. And then I might turn around a year later and say, hey, you know, I have this great film and, you know, we did this other film together, blah, blah, blah. So it's about relationship building, absolutely. And, you know, I would totally encourage your listeners to. Do whatever they can to forge relationships, even if it's just like dropping into panels and going to film festivals, like make those relationships. I've been able to do a lot of that work through either my producing or my financing work. But like any filmmaker can go to a film festival and try to make those contacts and those connections. It's the same people. It's just another avenue to get to them, I guess. I I took the
0: past two years to try to test case larger projects. Like I just made, I made two micro budget features. And I was like, I want to understand the development game and traditional producing and traditional development and, I don't, and development game and traditional development. I want to understand how larger projects get off the ground. And it seems to be there's like this chicken and egg game with talent and financing that keeps on coming up. And yeah, I, from your reaction, this is something that you deal with all the I time. I play that game every day. <laughs> is, is there any clarity you can give to how you approach it? If you're talking to a filmmaker who hasn't broken out yet, who doesn't have a bevy of investors ready to support them, how do you encourage projects to get those key pieces in order to get the train moving, so to speak?
2: It's such a good question. And I wish there was like a magical answer. And I wish someone could give me that magical answer. I'm just hoping that everyone on the show will piece together this this answer. It's so funny because like, yeah, I come at this from like this weird intersection of being a producer, but also a financier. And so I see both sides of it. And yet I every single day of my life am also just like everyone else, you know, Trying to push that boulder up the cliff and get my projects funded and and cast as well. I will say I do believe, I, I know this is kind of like an easy answer to give, but I do believe, like, what is it, the cream rhyme? Oh no. the no, no, Caitlin, no! No, don't say that. That's a terrible <laughs> answer. Like, I guess what I no, would say it, say
0: what you want. Your, I'm so sorry, please if say.
2: Your it. Is truly, if your script is truly, truly excellent. <laughs> It is a really, really tricky question. You know, I too get cast ratings from sales agents all the time. And I'm like, what? She's a C? Are you kidding me? Like, I would fucking kill to have her in my movie. So I totally get it. I think you have to go... As the producer, I think you have to go with your gut and like, trust that if this is talent that you truly think is exceptional in the role, that in and of itself will be enough to then draw like if you build it, they will come. And it doesn't it doesn't always happen that way, of course. But I think you just have to trust your instincts. You can also sort of like test the marketplace a little bit. Like if you're talking, if you have this particular talent in mind that you love and you get to a point where you're actually engaging that talent in talk, so it's beyond like you've made an offer and they haven't responded. Like they've responded, they've read, they like it, you've met with them, you're jiving, you want to move forward reach out to a couple financiers or a couple companies and get their get their take on that person is this someone you guys would respond to and if so and if not why like what is it about them that you don't love because we see them as perfect for this role for such and such reason so I think there there can definitely be an open dialogue before you sign on the dotted line with someone but I, I just think you that like producers have to trust and, and filmmakers have to trust their guts and their instincts around talent and if you really feel like, this is the person for your movie, just make your movie. Just make your movie. And, you know, uh, yeah, I I just... Because otherwise, you're... We're just never getting anything made. We're trying to get, you know, whomever the next hot young thing is in every single movie, it's just not going to happen. You know what I mean? We have to move on from that and be a little bit more creative and also take a little bit more risk, I think.
1: So how do you get to like the back and forth part with an actor? Because when, you know, in my own attempts to get, you know, talent on, on my, my first feature, you know, a lot of what we ran into was like, Oh, okay. Well, yeah, they're available. Send an offer in and we'll go from there. And it's like, well, if you don't have the funds, to actually send the offer, like, is it just circumstances where they're reading the script without an offer, and you just get lucky? Is like, is that what's happening? Are there other tricks to like getting those those meetings with actors?
2: I don't think there's any tricks. I, I do think a lot of it is based on relationships. Absolutely, I, I do think having like a really really excellent casting director who, if you don't have those relationships, hopefully that casting director has those relationships. Uh, you know, I'll I'll often make offers directly to agents, but a lot of the times I'm working with casting directors particularly if there's talent I'm interested in that I know I don't have a relationship with their reps, I'll find a casting director who is in that wheelhouse. Like it's not about having the same casting director cast all of my stuff. It's about finding the right the right casting director. I'm working on one project, it's a comedy and like our casting director is so tapped into that world. That's why we hired her. She knows every fucking comedian. So like that is she's perfect. I wouldn't hire, you know, a casting, uh, one of my, le- like I wouldn't hire a different casting director who had no relationships in the comedy world. So yes, I do think a lot of it is relationship-based. And if you yourself don't have those relationships, try to bring someone onto the team in the form of either a casting director or another producer, whatever it is, who does have those relationships. And yeah. And a lot of it is just perseverance and, And yes, you can make, you can, you can ask someone to read without making an offer. You can ask them to just read the project for interest. will straight up just ask their agent, will they read for interest or do they need an offer? And I've been told plenty of times, yeah, they'll read this or no, send an offer. (laughs) (laughs) Because your mission seems to be, sorry, it's like, I,
0: I have like, 45 questions for the funds and then I Time. seem to be really passionate about asking about you as an independent producer so that's what I'm focusing on <laughs> but since you're so interested in supporting female filmmakers and I assume that you know judging from your your resume that carries over to your independent productions that you do as well what would you advise emerging or mid-career female filmmakers to have in terms of assets for their projects so when they're in development and they're trying to get the green light, what do you see as the key points that they need to have in line?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. Obviously, a really polished script. don't That rises to, script- to the top. I don't mean to
0: cut off that point. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I've regretted that. No,
2: no, no, no. You know, I, I know it's not something... Listen, my projects often don't rise to the top in that same way that I was referring to. So I totally get that that's like a, such a cringy thing to hear. But when I'm on the financing side of it, I will tell you like the ones that come our way from like really trusted sources that I know have excellent taste, those rise to the top. So it is a sad and true thing at the same time. What was your question? Assets. So yes, absolutely a, a script that is in a state that is ready to be sent. I actually really, I, I really value. I, I know there's like debates around lookbooks and and pitch decks and all of that. I, you're laughing. Why you? We've had that <laughs> debate laughing. on the show. That's the oh, only reason. You? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. I don't know what I don't know what was said, but I I like them. I find that as someone who reads so many different scripts, sometimes they're just helpful reminders. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I need to be just reminded of like what those elements were in in that one or this one and i do and i like reading the director statements and like why why this story for you and why are you the, the person to tell it like I, I really value that stuff i care more about that than like i don't need like you know i don't like like look books look books like i don't need to see like 50 pages of random pictures Like I want, I want, I want content. I want, I want helpful content that tells me what this film is, who is making it and why, and why now? What else? I mean, that's a great starting point. And like, and and I need to know like an idea of the budget, I guess, but not even, not really, I guess. on, On the financing side, absolutely. I need to have an idea what the budget is, but for my own personal producing, like stuff gets sent to me before there's anyone on board to determine what the budget is so that i don't need
1: do you feel like concept trailers ever help in any way or do you feel like that's like kind of like oh it's nice but it doesn't really make that big of a difference
2: yeah that's funny we were actually just told on on one of my projects that it uh, to put together like a like a riff like a arithmetic and i'm like really Meh, i don't want to <laughs> <laughs> i prefer a proof of concept like if there's a short that's great. It doesn't, I don't need one. By no means do I need one, but sure, it's great to see. But I can also just look at the director's past work and get a sense of what their capabilities are. I always look at their past work. I always will check out the shorts and if they've done other features, of course, watch their other features. Yeah.
0: Speaking on budget level, I mean, it'd be great to hear your perspective from both sides of, of what you represent. Are you seeing a regular budget level come in looking for funding for 51 Fund? And it sounds like it's flexible for your independent productions. But I mean, is that, it used to be like lower budget was like the 750, 800K film. And then beyond that, there were, it just seems like the mid tier, maybe like that range to like $5 million has dropped out in a weird way. So I'm just curious if you're seeing trends in budget levels for funding.
2: I would say on both. I'm working a lot in like the 2 to $3 million space
0: hmm.
2: for a 51 fund. Yeah, I would say sub, although we've looked at a couple bigger ones, but sub $5 million, but really like sub three is where we're really comfortable. And that's not to say that we would come in as a sole investor on a $3 million film. We would not. We would be, you know, we would partner with other companies. And then for my own personal projects, I mean, there's just an inherent cost in making movies in New York. That are union in the time of COVID, so it's really, really hard to make a film that's less than two million dollars in New York when you're union and COVID is a thing. So yeah, unless it's non-union, I, I'm not really seeing many budgets below that. To be totally honest, so similar similar budget range, I would say.
1: Do you feel like doing like like why would you not do do a non-union movie just because like you have to do it, make it union in order to get?
2: No, but you mean DGA, right? Well, at I- really, it's oh. just mostly because I don't want to get flipped. I don't want to have the responsibility <laughs> of, as a producer of, you know, I make a, a $1.5 million film or even a $1 million film. And I say it's non-union. And then IOTC comes knocking mm. and they want to flip us. And all of a sudden I, turn, I have to turn around to my investors and say, guys, I need another million dollars. <laughs> That's a huge, huge liability for me. And I I rather just either from the outset make it a union project or are there more non-union friendly places in the United States to shoot? Or is it a film that doesn't need to like? Is this appropriately budgeted at sub one million dollars in it, and it doesn't even you know it doesn't need to be union?
1: Yeah, because they're not going to go after a five hundred thousand dollars movie, most likely, right? Like
2: they're not. But I have heard stories, you know, plenty of stories actually of like films approaching seven hundred and fifty a million dollars and getting. Knocked and and that's that's really scary to me i don't i don't want to go near that (laughs) at all it
1: feels like a million plus is where it starts to get really dicey you know and then if there's name talent of any kind or any buzz around the movie i feel like that's that happens sometimes too if it's like being written about in variety then suddenly iatsy's like what the fuck
2: (laughs) yeah absolutely (laughs) another reason to keep your project out of the trades until it's until it's done and done
1: (laughs) Uh, right fair. I, I have one more question, Liz. I I, I know you want to maybe move on.
2: No, I have
0: one last question too. You, oh, you good. Go oh, mine? cool.
1: Awesome. So, I'm just curious, like, you know, you're talking about like the good scripts, you know, rise and, and everything. And I, I know we're like kind of hemming on this a little bit. When you find your own projects, like how do, how do you look, how do you so- source them for your own production company? Like, how are you finding these scripts? How are you finding these filmmakers? Is it just, to word of mouth? Do you have a system? Like, how are you, you know, cultivating your list of your I slate of no, films?
2: I have no system. <laughs> it's mostly just relationships. Someone will send something my way and say, hey, you should read this. They're looking for a producer. It's, it, it, I think it might speak to you. Or you meet a filmmaker at a festival or, or IFP week or Gotham week or, or, Tribeca or, you know, whatever it might be, or you meet a filmmaker at a festival. It's mostly just through relationship buildings. And I I like to date for a really, really long time before I jump on a project. So I, I try to, you know, if someone, if I, if I meet a filmmaker and they like turn around the next day and they're like, will you produce this? I'm like, whoa, 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 (laughs) whoa, 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 whoa. I, I, that terrifies me. (laughs) I really want to get to know the people that I'm working with personally, as much as professionally. And so a lot of that just takes time. And so it's a relationship building thing. You know, occasionally there might be something that I read that comes my way through either the 51 funder or whatever source. Maybe someone just sends it to me and I'm just like, wow, this is so good. And then I chase it. But again, even that, like it's relationship building. Like I would never also expect to, you know, to be asked to jump on a project right away. It's like, what is my value add to a project? I might not be the right fit for a project, even if I love it. So it's 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 a long process, and yeah, and it, it's it's relationships. Once again, we're, we're we're there's a theme of this conversation, and it's relationships. <laughs> It'll be the title of our episode, don't you worry? <laughs> we'll we'll keep
0: it going. You know, at the beginning of this conversation, you talked about something that I also agree with, and that it's very difficult to make money as an independent filmmaker. Distribution is difficult. There's a lot of people taking pieces of the pie, and you know, art has been devalued. There's many arguments that can confirm this. I'm curious to now in the state of your career working as producing independent content and being part of the 51 Fund, are you seeing a different vantage point? Are you seeing people make money or is it still as bad as it was in the beginning of your distribution career?
2: I mean, it's a hard question to answer because... I mean, on the financing side of things, I'm still so new to this. Mm. You know, like cuss, yeah, we we did really well. Our investors were very, very, very happy, but it could have not worked out that way. And we don't know how our next three films are gonna perform. You know, we try to do as much due diligence as we can on them to know the sort of like worst case scenario. And we go into them with confidence, like we would not jump on something that we weren't confident was going to sell and at a good price. But we don't know. It's all a big fucking guessing game. And even anyone who tells you they know, like, they don't know. They're liars. They're liars. Like, not even a sales agent who can, like, promise you that it's going to, this is the floor, this is the ceiling. Like, nobody knows. So, yeah, I, I will say, like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of places for films to land these days. So that's great. Like there's a vast, (laughs) there's a myriad of options available to filmmakers. But I think, again, going back to like the beginning of the conversation for the films that I started making at the beginning of my career, like those films still will struggle even in today's marketplace. No question.
1: All right. So I think we're up to our final six questions. I'm going to go first. What's the first film you made and how do you feel about it now?
2: Oh my gosh. The first film, well, I'll answer like the first film that I was lead producer on because it wasn't the first film I made, but the first producing, lead producing experience I had was a film called Imagine I'm Beautiful by Naomi McDougall-Jones, who has come up multiple times on this conversation. So yeah, I, I that was back in 2000... God, Naomi will know better than me. 2011, 2012? I have no idea at this point. 2012, I would probably say. And what do I think about it now? We made that film for $0 for no money. No money. It wasn't zero, but it was pretty close to zero. And... I'm still quite proud of it. It's been a long time since I've watched it, but I think for a film that was trying to tackle a pretty tough subject matter, I'm I'm proud of what we did. I probably would not make that movie today as my first movie because it was a film, it was a, a story about a young woman with borderline personality disorder and like that wasn't my experience. It was based off like someone that Naomi knew. It was it was a little too far removed from us. I think I I wouldn't try to tackle that today as my first film, and certainly not in the same way. But for 2012 and no money, I'm I'm so proud of it. The team was amazing. I still love everyone who was a part of that film. So yeah, still still I'm not embarrassed to have it on my IMDb at all. <laughs> There's lots of other credits I would be way more embarrassed to have.
0: What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received?
2: Oh, best filmmaking advice. Hmm. I would say the thing that comes to mind, I'm sure there's better ones I can think of, but the thing that comes to mind is never be afraid to walk away from people and projects that are not serving you and that you are not serving. And I think that's probably pretty (laughs) self-explanatory.
1: What's the worst filmmaking advice you've ever received? Oh.
2: Just raise enough money to get to production and then worry about post after. That is horrible advice. I've done it. I would never do it. I would never tell anyone to do that. Please, for the love of God, don't do that.
1: I did it. It worked out.
2: (laughs) We've all done it. I mean, I've done it too, and it worked out okay in that end. It was. It's not an emotionally like conducive, productive way to make movies, in my opinion. I don't think it is good for us.
0: <laughs> Ag- agreed. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Do you have a goal as a, goal
0: as a filmmaker?
2: I desperately one day hope to have a film at TIFF. That is a film festival that I grew up with. I'm a very proud Canadian and Torontonian, as I'm sure many people hear in my accent occasionally during this conversation. But yeah, I I just grew up going to that festival. It it meant a lot to me as a kid. Uh, It still means a lot to me. And I would be so honored to be able to premiere a film that I produced at that festival in my hometown.
1: If you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself?
2: Oh my God, these are hard questions, you guys. (laughs) What's one piece of advice I would give myself? I mean, it's kind of the advice that I took, which is just get out there and make stuff. Just make stuff. It is the absolute best school learning experience. Like you can go to the best film school, whatever, I don't care. Like you will never learn as much in a classroom as you will on a film set. Is making movies hard? Yes. Yes, uh, I would say besides being a mother, it is the hardest thing I have ever done in my life. Yeah, you did it. You made it through our our
0: gauntlet. How can people support you? How can they follow you? How can they support the fund? Oh, sell your wares.
2: So what you oh my gosh, do? that's really kind. I mean, just follow us on Instagram. I guess I don't know. We never post, but we will. You know, we have. You know, we have three films that we haven't announced yet that we've that we've invested in. So announcements on those will be coming as we can release them. So I would say if you're interested in learning about our our films, please do follow us on Instagram because that's the first place we'll post about them. So it's the 50 it's at the 51 fund. And then my production company is at Tanbark Pictures.
0: Ulrich, what do you remember about chatting with Caitlin?
1: I remember being so confused, slashed, impressed with someone who is like actively raising money for their own films and then decides, hey you know what would be a great idea? Let me start a fund where I raise money for other people's films on top of raising money for my own films. And that'll be a good challenge, a good thing to do to like, I could just, it's so hard to raise money. Like, let me just make it more hard and raise money for more movies <laughs> that aren't my movies. I'm like, wow, what, I mean, what an amazing thing for someone to do. You know, that's like really like like a, a great thing to do for the world, for other filmmakers. And just something that, like, I think is really impressive. Like, I, I mean, I have such a hard time raising money. And it sounds like she, it's challenging for her, too. But she just is able to do it in a way that I have not been able to figure it out. And so it's just, it, was, it was just really impressive. So that, that's the main thing I remember from that conversation.
0: Yeah, I remember that. And just a reminder that she's working with a few people, but one of them was also on the show prior. Naomi McDougal jones is someone that I talk about all the time because I'm doing this, whatever we're calling this pod filmmaking model together this year with naomi i also remember caitlin and how she referred to working with filmmakers like meeting them for the first time was a, a long process to decide whether to work with a filmmaker or not and she said like she dates them for a long time like she'll mm. you know go on a first date and they'll talk and it'll be a very long getting to know you process and i i, I have a confession As soon as the episode was over, I emailed her and I said, I would like to go on a date with you. And so (laughs) we had a date, which, you know, she's a very busy, fancy producer. So I'm just happy that I got a little FaceTime with her. But I was I, I liked that a lot because I think that too quickly we make snap decisions about who to work with. And ultimately it's a very long commitment and we should be very thoughtful about it. So I liked her advice about making partners in this industry.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. So for any film fans out there, which is all of you, I'm assuming, or it has to be, because this is a film podcast. The Oscars were crazy on Sunday and you know, it was my, it's always mired in some kind of controversy or another, but like even before the slap heard around the world happened, there was like, you know, a lot of other shit happening, lots of drama as always, like, you know, not, you know, airing a bunch of categories properly and just doing like, I didn't exactly know what, I thought like maybe they would just like list them on the screen, but at least they actually showed the speeches. Like, like I thought that was at least one nice thing about it. But then this like whole, ca- like, I didn't even really know what was happening, these like user you know, decided categories. <laughs> it's like, what the hell? Like, this is, is this crazy? Like, how did Justice League end up as the top? What is happening here? But anyways, there's an in-depth article written by one of our favorites, Eric Cohn, from IndieWire, about everything that went down at the Oscars, including the drama around stars not showing up, and then this whole thing I didn't even know about with Sean Penn trying to get the president of Ukraine to be on the show, and like, making that like, like a huge push That like didn't happen and they like thought about doing it, but then they didn't do it. And it's like, yeah, crazy. So anyways, Liz, you're like kind of the Oscar expert of the show. Like you love the Oscars, like I think more than I do. I love the Oscars, but I think you take it to another level. What did you think of this article?
0: I mean, I wrote notes of the article and I think, sorry, I wrote notes from the article that I wanted to talk about. But also the reason I'm having such trouble with my words today is because I think I'm a little nervous to talk about the slap. And I have so many things to say about this lab. Why? And it's overshadowing everything that I want to say about this article. Because I think a lot of us who are following the entertainment industry, Sunday night was a shock to us. And then all of us probably, or a good portion of us, went to Twitter and saw the takes and the intensity of the takes. And then there seemed to be some overlap into Monday and now even Tuesday about the takes. And... It just threw me for a loop because I watched the event being so firm and resolute in how I interpreted it. And then you go online and it's like a weird Tower of Babel situation where everyone has a different interpretation of this event. And that has been very, it's been wild to me. It was like being Can dad. It was like, it was like all of these things. It was like blue dress, white dress, whatever it is. It's like, sorry, gold dress, blue dress. It's like, you, it's just like a shock where you're like, I'm so confused that other people are seeing this event in a complete 180 from how I see it. And they have, like, incredibly legitimate reasons why they see it in that way. And and anyway, I'm very thrown by the whole experience, personally.
1: Well, did you know all the stuff in this article already before reading it? Or is this, like, was some of this news to you? Or was this all, like, you know? I mean, I knew about
0: Sean Penn saying that he would smelt his Oscar... I mean, I didn't know that the the film about Afghanistan would be upset about the Queen of Basketball. I mean, there's certain things that you don't know in advance. But Oh, and actually I think the article got one thing wrong. I could because Mila Kunis was brought on to introduce Reba McIntyre, not to do the tribute to the Ukraine. Ah,
1: interesting. So I
0: don't know why they kind of conflated those two elements. But yeah, it was a really, really interesting Oscars. It was amazing. I got really cranky because my no one i couldn't hear it because <laughs> colin was watching adam's family on his phone and
1: oh know, really? the dog
0: was running across the room but uh, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter uh,
1: i recorded it and then when bb went to sleep then i watched it you know oh. and and i paused it and we made yeah. like we did a whole oscar so we made like really fun snack treats and stuff and we were up to like 11 a- p.m watching it and like oh then, when the slap happened like but then like texting all my friends like holy shit what the fuck it was oh my god
0: it was so insane but then okay so i talked to a friend of mine i'm not gonna out her here but okay should we talk about this should we even talk about let's, t- let's talk in about this it lab? let's talk
1: about it i want to hear what you what, i want to hear where you what your initial reaction was okay. my initial then, like, reaction
0: <laughs> was like this is so obviously wrong chris rock is a comedian I believe in free speech. I believe that comedians should push boundaries and I again, I've said many times on before in the show I like people being offensive. I like people being a little bit transgressive. Like that's cool to me even if it hurts some feelings. And I I even wrote on Twitter like protect Chris Rock at all costs because I was like, "Oh, I'm very pro Chris Rock in this scenario." And then I my mind was blown. By every other perspective, and now I have a much more in-depth, nuanced view of the whole thing. But anyway, that's my perspective. Was that? Well, what's your so
1: so now you're like maybe maybe it was justified, is what you're saying? Or
0: I do not think it was justified. I don't think slaps are justified, but I'm not seeing it as a shockingly violent event, which is what I saw it as. I was like, I couldn't believe.
1: But, But it was a shockingly violent event. It's the kind of thing that's like if if that happened anywhere in the world besides right there. You're thrown out and and maybe even the night, if it's a club, like the club might be closed after that potential. I worked, I used to be a bouncer. So like when fights would happen, like we would just shut the shit down. It would be over and everyone's out, you know? But in the very least, if, if a fight like that or if someone, something like that happened, both people are out of the club for sure, right? And so like, I don't know, think of one like event in the world where the person isn't thrown out after doing that thing. <laughs> Well, if like, but Chris Rock didn't
0: want to press charges. The But It doesn't matter. It called. doesn't matter
1: if he wants to press charges. You know, you would take like that. Out. Yeah. They're both gone. <laughs> they're both gone. They're in a fight. They're both gone. Their asses are on the street. That's how it goes. You know, it's so like, I mean, I can't imagine at a concert if it's much different. Maybe. That's interesting. Maybe, maybe like, you know, maybe there are different scenarios where it's just the aggressor who gets thrown out in, in certain s- situations. But like, action is taken, is my point. So like to be to see it happen and then no action be taken, and then no no reaction from the audience whatsoever when he wins, and no like no stance being taken against you know, it's just like, oh, we love you, you're so great. It's like,
0: that what? was okay, that was the thing that was <laughs> oh so God. upsetting to me is that it felt like Will Smith was coddled after it happened. And it's like, oh, was, poor, poor man who poor just hit Will somebody, <laughs> yeah. And so I was very upset by that because it felt like it was like the Hollywood weird Hollywood machinery taking over in this like little bubble that they all live in where there's no repercussions for actions and they all get kind of exalted on a daily basis to like superhuman status. And that really bothered me. But at the same time, I have some very, very close friends who were very upset by what Chris Rock said to Jada and thought it was an equal offense to the slap like that it was just as bad and that is mind melting to me because it just i my mind doesn't work that way it's a do, joke
1: do, do you think chris rockin knew she has alopecia
0: i think so yeah i think you so. think
1: he did so you think it was like an intentional joke I about that her she alopecia. Had
0: alopecia i i mean i didn't I, know <laughs> and, and
1: and and my wife beth who is like the most celebrity gossip insane person in the world who reads everything can tell you every bit of celebrity gossip back to like 1970 she didn't know that she had alopecia so it's like I know. if like I, I just don't think chris rock knew i i was just you know like he's not gonna go research everybody in the audience before he goes on the set you know or whatever and if it was like I don't think it was a written joke because if it was a written joke, no, it
0: was improvised. It was an improvised yeah. joke. It wasn't cleared by producers.
1: Because if it was a written joke, then like of course it would have been. Somebody would have done the research on that, right? But like it was totally not a written joke, and so I don't think it. It was just because she looks like a badass with her shaved head and she's in amazing shape. It's it's almost like a compliment joke because he's comparing her to Demi Moore in her fucking prime, dude. <laughs> like like how is I. I I don't I don't get it and like for for me it's like you watch the clip he's like Will Smith is like laughing at the joke and then he like turns to see how upset his wife right. is and then he's like oh no now I'm going to do something it's like right like what <laughs>
0: That's, like, the moment. The, that's the moment that everyone is talking about like what are we not seeing in between the laugh and the look
1: right? and it's just like so insane that he would do that and it's even more insane that she wants him to do that she's like yeah go hit that man
2: well, <laughs> like, we don't, don't have do any
0: that? proof that she encouraged him she seemed to be off there's no
1: like there's no she didn't speak out she hasn't like she said no... she
0: posted on Instagram today that this is the season for healing I have no idea what that means then Jaden posted Sunday night or Monday something like this. Is that's how we do it? We do it. does not
1: seem does not seem like she. It seems like she contones the behavior for. I, sure, th- I
0: think it's his is- decision. It's on him. I don't even put her in here. I put her, I put her in the conversation. It's all. I blame him entirely. But, okay, but back to the article. But like, 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 basically, if
1: if I did that, right? Yes. Like Beth would be like. Like, she would leave. She would be gone. She wouldn't even be in the... She would, I wouldn't be sleeping on the couch. She would not be there to see my speech. She would be gone. I would... It would have been terrible. It would have been, like, the worst thing I could possibly do to, like, embarrass her in that way and make an ass of myself and be a complete piece of shit. Yeah. You know, on live, live television. Like, you'd be like, what is your problem? Like, you but think I need that? it was I your
0: decision. That? Like, there's a lot of people that are coming out there being like, well she wanted him to do it or she encouraged him to do it but like we literally do not know all we know is that you don't know gotta, that
1: but i just she doesn't she doesn't seem upset about it <laughs> she I mean, seems like yeah. whatever that's cool will thank thanks for I'm not part of those honor. conversations i'm not saying that i know i just think it seems that way you know right. but obviously that's, it was his decision it's not she's not controlling what's him.
0: crazy about this is like this weird very specific scenario everyone including me is projecting onto them exactly like all of like i'm projecting onto them like you know i'm a pacifist i don't believe in any violence like I, so i'm projecting onto my own like weird restrictions for the way i live my life i mean but uh, i don't anyway i did like in the article that we're supposed to talk about at the end of it someone says something about how they saw something real and that's the only oh way. yeah i was like well you're right i mean it was actually yeah. Reality within something with such artifice, like the Oscars, is just full of, and I love it. I love it. It's such delicious artifice, but it is. It's so artificial. And it was one moment of reality that broke that. That,
1: that, that comment scares me though, because it's like, yeah, it was real. It's not something real, and obviously, I mean, this was this was like a quote taken from like the after party. So this person yeah. is clearly a drunk person. So that, that sounds like something a drunk person would say first off. And then second off, it's like, you know, that that's like, well, then what's next? Like if someone like, you know, kill somebody on national TV, it's like, well, at least I saw something that was real. It's like, where does that common end? It's like, that's really scary to like, you know, think cause it's, cause this is like, let's be real people. Like this is a terrible thing that happened and it's not a good thing for our country or for the film industry or for the Oscars or for anything it's just bad like to have this kind of behavior happen and then like you know say, say say what you want like oh we don't condone violence or whatever but clearly you did because you let him spin accept his speech you didn't do his speech accept his award you did not kick him out clearly you, you condoned it you, you can take it back all you want but you did you condone the action you let it happen and you let it play out and there were no repercussions for for the action whatsoever so you condoned it and that's bad. It's very bad. It's not good for society. It's not good for anybody. And the, the, the thing the thing that like people are emboldened by this and that there are people who are like supporting Will Smith is like insane. It's like you guys are all the drunk people at, at bars who think it's good to fight at bars. It's like, what? The, no, fighting at bars is bad. No one should be fighting at bars. No one should be fighting at restaurants. I don't no one know. should be fighting on the street. If you want to fight, you settle it separately, privately with somebody like, or in the ring, or whatever, but you don't do it on in public. It's just, that's not what we do. That's not like a human decency society thing. That's bad. That's like an old western dueling Hitting society. The is
0: horrible. I, I completely agree. Bad. But I think it's very interesting to me that so many people are split on whether Chris Rock deserved it or not. Like, that's confusing to me, because again, like, I like insult comedy. I like boundary pushing comedy. I love The Amazing Jonathan. I love Gallagher. I love Don Rickles. I love all these like weird fringe comics that are out there. Kathy Griffin is like one of my favorite comics ever. So it's like you think about that and you think about Ricky Gervais. You think about and how Ricky Gervais used to just tear apart James Corden for his weight over and over and over again. But it's like that is the territory of the comics. It, Dane yeah. Cook did a, like a Twitter chat last night, and he was saying like we are asked to be rabble rousers at these shows. That is our job to come in yeah. and talk about and make fun of celebrities. But there is a very strong, passionate faction of people who just think that Chris Rock was out of line, and that's what I'm trying to understand because I'm having a really hard time getting that.
1: Yeah, there's, there's, I know you could not convince me that you can't convince me he was out of line because it was a light joke to begin with, and and it's actually like unless you think that he knows that she had alopecia and he's digging into her alopecia, which I will guarantee you is not the case. That is not what happened. We don't know. There's no no no. one thousand percent. I know. (laughs) He even said it. He's like, I'm not a, I'm not a hurtful person. I'm not a mean person. I'm not. I don't. I don't make mean jokes to hurt people's feelings. It's like, yeah, obviously you don't. Like, that's not who you are. Like, we know that for 30 years of your comedy. Like, that's not what you're doing. And it's like, I don't know. So anyone who thinks that, like, he went out there to, like, hurt her feelings, she got offended. Like, and that's okay. People have feelings. People can get offended by yeah, things. But it was uh, right a, uh, was, she was hurt by something that's very personal to her. And that's very, like, like she just opened up a wound to talk about it publicly. And, like, she felt like it was, she was taken down a notch by that joke. But that was not the intention of the joke. That is not what anyone took away from the joke. It, it's just not at all what happened. It was just a misconnect, you know? And, and that stuff happens all the time. It's like when you go to a club and someone tells a, like a, a drunk joke or something, and it's like, my husband it was an alcoholic, and then he killed himself on New Year's Eve because he was an alcoholic. It's like, how the fuck is that comedian supposed to know that that happened to you? And that now he can't make any drunk-related jokes that whole evening because you're in the crowd. Like, he doesn't know that or she doesn't know that. Like there's no way. So like you just can't like in comedy is a thing where like nothing's off limits.
0: That's right. That's so, why I love comedy. That's why I love I don't it.
1: know. I just can't get behind people. who are like Chris Rock deserved it. Like what the fuck? No, he didn't. Do you, do you want me to come through the computer and slap you in the face right now? Do you think you deserved it? No, you did not. No one deserves it. Okay. So <laughs> I don't know. Anyways, the last thing I want to say about this is like yeah. the fact that we spent like 10, 15 minutes talking about the slap and we are not talking about anything else Oscar related is like, what is the biggest tragedy of this whole thing? Is that no one's going to talk about Troy Coaster, I'm not saying his name right, winning the first deaf person to win an Oscar for acting. No one's talking about...
0: Well, art's outside of Marlee Matlin. So he's the oh, second.
1: Oh, she won an Oscar? Yeah. And then that the woman who won for West Side Story is like the first openly queer you know, person of color to win in an acting category. Yeah. It's like, you know... These things, is what, this is what we should remember. Coda winning best picture. This is what we should remember. Questlove, Questlove winning, yeah. you know, for this best documentary. These are the things that we should remember. And no one's going to remember that. All because one stupid asshole, rich motherfucker, decided that he wanted to go and Kanye West it. You know, like, that's what <laughs> happened. And you can call it whatever you want. You can try mm-hmm. to sugarcoat it and say something else. But that's exactly what happened. And it sucks. And it sucks that our country defends this kind of behavior. And thinks it's cool, and that no one's going to stand up and 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 say something in the moment because that's when it needs to happen, and that just not doesn't happen, and and probably isn't going to happen. I love the comparisons they're making to like Will Smith and Trump because I feel like it's very similar. You know, it's like no one says shit; it's just like whatever. (laughs) It's like then it continues, and people think it's okay, and then we've got a huge problem in our on our hands.
0: I mean, it's fascinating. I also, yeah. I got pulled in, and I pulled us in into this conversation too because it just felt like I couldn't not talk about it. <laughs> it was just yeah, I like think the only thing. In fact, I had a meeting with Amy this morning. We meet twice a week to talk about our treatment that we're writing this co- this co writing this horror film together. And I spent a half hour talking about it because I couldn't go into the outline without talking <laughs> about it with her. So it's clearly something that I need to let go of as well
1: yeah i think we all need to let go of it and think of like all the wonderful things that happened you know the the the, the show wasn't the best there was lots of issues with it you know but there were lots of good things about the show too that i enjoyed so you know hopefully they're gonna like fine-tune it bring back the other categories go back to the way it was you know bring some of the fun things that they did keep the hosts retweak it and then we'll have a great oscars next year hopefully with no bullshit this time
0: well, talking about things that aren't bullshit, eh? eh, we have an amazing iTunes review from James Castleman from the US. So James writes, great show. Liz and Ulrich are open and candid about their work in film and their ups and downs. They bring an amazing guest to share their experience and what it takes to make movies. It's a great encouragement for anyone who is working or, or who wants or working or wants to work in the industry. And it's fun for any fan of film to hear how it's made. Five stars. And I know James. I just realized I know James because him and his wife, Rebecca, made a lovely film called Next to North that I'm supporting as a consultant. So thank you, James, for supporting our show.
1: Awesome. Thanks, James. That was amazing. I had things I want to talk to you about after this review, but we spent so much time talking about the Oscars that we won't (laughs) get to do it. We'll do it next time. If you want to give us an iTunes review, you can do that by going on to apple podcasts and doing said review or a rating's great too just leave us a rating that also is awesome but if you want to ask us a question or give us a comment or suggestion and we would talk about it right now normally you could do that by going to podcast at makingmovies is com. you can also check us out on facebook instagram and, and twitter at mmih podcast and youtube at making movies is hard podcast where there are still some diehard people who watch and listen on YouTube even though we've abandoned our YouTube almost entirely. But it's not true. We are still on there, and there's more fun stuff coming. Check out the International Screenwriters Association, the ISA. They are an organization designed to connect with writers with filmmakers through a number of programs, including publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals, consultation courses, contests, and our top 25 writers list featuring some of their best writers. So head over to www.networkisa.org today to sign up for free. Thanks so much to Caitlin for coming on the show. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Reimut, for doing the editing. And thanks, as always, to our producer, Eric Toms, for being totally awesome. Thanks to you all for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Speaking of other things. Um, <laughs> oh, that's <was> terrible.
0: <laughs> Speaking of uh, things other than this. Enough about that. Will, we also wanted it. A- Think about, oh, so bad. Sorry, Jeff.